You're listening to El Yoshi Did It Podcast with Yoshi Obayashi and Lilith Arvani. Alright, hey everyone, this is Yoshi reporting from、uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. This is the first podcast episode I'm doing here. I am here in Kabul at、um, Ka- Saad Mosseini's house. He was kind enough to let me use the house today. And I'm very delighted and very happy to be here with my good friend Kimberly Motley. I, I don't know where to begin because she's not just an international human rights、uh, attorney, but.、Um, um, She's doing so many pro bono cases for、uh, international、um, workers in Kabul, in addition to Afghan、um, citizens. And there's obviously a lot of corruption issues as well as other、um, issues in this country. And she was very kind enough to come and、um, join us. And bear with me, I don't have Ernie here, and Lily's not here, and I'm not very technical with this. So if there is some problem, it's, it's my fault. So,、um, having said that, Kimberly, thanks for coming here and doing this podcast.、Uh, you, I'm really happy that you're here. Yeah, thank you for being here. I'm happy to be here.、Um, so, well, let's talk about, like, talk about、um, your background. Where did you grow up, and、um, you know, what's your back? Wait, well, let the audience know your background. Okay.、Right. Well, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin,、um, born and raised.、Um, basically, my father was in the Air Force, and he's African American, and my mother's from North Korea, and they met、um, and married each other when he was in the service. Good taste, by the way, your dad. Very good taste. I'm in good company.、Um, so, what's up to all the Koreans out there, <laughs> and also black folks? But,、um, and so, They met and married in Seoul, Korea when he was in the service. And we grew up in Milwaukee,、um, in the housing projects of Milwaukee. I see.、Um, you, know, you, you became a attorney later on. Did living in project, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of injustice and violence and gang problems, did, did that prepare you to work in Afghanistan, practice law here?、Um, I think it definitely has. I think、um, growing up, In the neighborhood that I did grow up with, in, and seeing the things that I saw as a child definitely prepared me for Afghanistan.、Um, I didn't grow up in the nicest neighborhoods in the、yeah. US, and I feel like I treat Afghanistan as one big bad neighborhood. And so I think having a lot of street sense here、yeah. goes a long way as a person, as a professional, and also, frankly, as an attorney that's you know, virtually fighting against a lot of people in representing clients here. Because you know, my impression of you is, is you're incredibly brave. And、um, tell, tell the audience, first of all, you, you're the, you are the first Western attorney practicing in Afghanistan, correct? Yes. I'm the, well, I'm the first and only Western attorney that actually goes to court in Afghanistan. Right. And so I, I think I still am the only one.、Um, there are about four other attorneys here, but they're contract lawyers, and that's different. I do that too, they don't go to court. I see. So, and I know you're very successful here. A lot of it has to do with obviously you're extremely book smart, but you're also a street smart person. And 
Um, yesterday, this is a pretty good example because I don't care how good of a law school you've been, there's something you, they can't teach you, toughness and, and uh, having courage, you know. So remember yesterday we went to the, I'm sorry, uh, Polycharchy yes. prison, which is the biggest prison in Afghanistan and it, it, hold, it has a notorious history, doesn't it? They right. used to execute thousands of people there and torturing people and things like that. So right, it was known as a prison of death. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's no joke, and, we, and you were kind enough to invite <laughs> me, and I, I was really happy you did that because um, I, I live for things like that. So anyway, even when we were driving over, we get pulled over, and, and what, is that a common thing? We're like, why did we get pulled over and and then uh, were, the guy was harassing us? Right, I mean, we got pulled over and he was harassing us, and... You know, it, it, it's just, I've never been pulled over at the certain checkpoint that we mm. were pulled over in Polacharki. I think it was a combination of he was bored, and also, frankly, there was an explosion yesterday. So checkpoints tend to be more on alert, and so maybe that was part of the reason. Um, but, yes, they pulled us over. Yes, they tried to harass us. Yes, they tried to get money out of us. None of the above worked, and we went to Polacharki. Yeah. And you know, I think most of the time I might have gotten a little nervous. There's not even a second I was worried because I was with you. Because the way okay. you carry yourself. Um, oh, by the way, you're you're also former beauty queen too from Wisconsin. Yes, I was Mrs. Wisconsin, 2004. Yeah, it, it helps. You know, you have to bring in the beauty that go with it, and and so going back, I was I didn't have any fear. I think after a while, the guy realized there's nothing that he could do to us to change the situation, get money or anything like that. And, and you're aggressive, but in a very polite way. And he, after a while, he started laughing, and he eventually let us go. And um, it seems like that's your thing, isn't it? And like, yeah. you're, you're very firm. After a while, they realize they're yeah, not going to around. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and so... I mean, it was good. I think if you're polite to people, I am firm but aggressive. And, you know, at the end of the day, it, yesterday was really like a sitcom to me. You know, a lot of funny things happen here that a lot of people get nervous about. But, you know, you have to be polite. You have to be firm. Yeah. You can't take no for an answer. And I know the law also. And so, you know, I'm happy to tell people to go pound sand if they need to go pound sand. And that's right. what he needed to do yesterday. Yeah, and uh, the driver and translator, you know, they're just doing their job. And, um, yeah, you're very firm. And, yeah, it was great. Um, I, I, I'm glad I saw that. And eventually we went to the prison, and because you have three of your clients, and um, you were kind enough to introduce me to them, you, you know, obviously we don't really need to talk about their names. Right. But um, do you mind talking about the cases? And this is pro bono too, right? You're, uh, uh, one of the three is a paid client. The other two are pro bono. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's been movies like um, Midnight Express where Americans have this fear of going overseas and having legal issues. So maybe you could tell them about each cases and how you're helping them. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, one case involves um, a South African that's in Bevan Campbell. He's happy for me to talk about his case openly. He's in for... Uh, a very sweet guy. He's a very sweet guy. He's in for drug smuggling. Yeah. And I want people to understand that I've been a defense attorney for 10 years. Um, I'm practiced in the U.S. I practice in Afghanistan. Yeah. I'm licensed in the UAE. I'm working on my U.S. Supreme Court license. 
I'm working on a barrister's license in the UK. Um, so I have a lot of experience with practicing as a lawyer, especially on criminal defense, defense cases. And all my clients are all human beings, and they all deserve due process, they all deserve good representation, and that includes Bevan Campbell. Yeah. And so Bevan Campbell was basically accused of smuggling drugs. He's accused of trying to leave Afghanistan with drugs from the airport. Um, the drug evidence was, if there was any, was went missing. Um, wait, wait, so after they arrested him with drugs, the, the evidence are gone? From gone, right. And so basically, uh, long story short, he, was, he went to first court, second court, and third court. And in all three courts, he kind of had an Afghan lawyer. Yeah. And what I mean kind of is, when I came here in 2008, I met a lot of foreigners that were locked up that basically Afghans were refusing to represent, meaning non-Afghan people locked up, right. Brits, you know, Australians, people from Africa. And so Bevan kind of had a lawyer, but really didn't have a lawyer. And so his lawyer basically didn't really do anything for him, didn't force the government to bring any witnesses, didn't force them to present the evidence. And they, basic, they basically convicted him on nothing. Um, no evidence, no witnesses, none of that. And so he was given 16 years prison. And this happened in 2007. And since 2007, Bevan has been locked up at Policharki yeah. prison. Um, and so I decided to take his case because he was roommates with another one of my clients, um, Bill Shaw, who I represented and was ever able to get him an acquittal. And so um, Bevan's just a nice guy, and I rep started representing him in 2010. Right. And by then, he had exhausted all his legal remedies. It was more of a humanitarian yeah. um, thing while I was representing him. Um, you know, I put in several pardon applications for him in case the president wants to pardon him. But a, an issue with him is there's no African or let alone South African embassy in Afghanistan. So he doesn't have really any sort of political protection here. So he really is on an island. And so... Um, well, let me ask you, because if, isn't, if it is in states and they lost or someone stolen the evidence, what do they, they do? Did they drop the charge? Or? In the state? Yeah. Oh, in the state, you, I mean, they wouldn't charge you. They couldn't charge you. You know, if you have an attorney that has half a brain, you know, you would make them present the evidence in court. If they don't have the evidence to present it, then it should be dismissed or you should get a not guilty. Huh. And the thing about with Bevan, which people need to know, you know, he went to court. He did not speak the language. Yeah. And, you know, he went to one court. Yeah. Now, mind you, he was in, his case went through three courts. He only was brought one time. And he has no idea what they said. He had no idea what his sentence was until months after he went to court, when someone within the jail finally told him. It took all of 20 minutes for them to give him 16 years prison with no evidence and no witnesses and a half-assed attorney representing him. It's a classic case of miscarriage of um, justice. I mean, Jesus Christ. I, I, didn't, I didn't know the extent. I mean, when I met him, you know, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but my gut feeling was I got decent guy, and you would think stay in jail for that many years, you'll be bitter and angry, but he was so happy to talk to someone, right. uh, you know, and um, he was very sweet, and he was very honest when I talked to him, and um, yeah, I, I, 
hope nothing but the best for him. But uh, yeah, it, 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 it just it was amazing that he was such a good nature about it. You know. Yeah. Um, um, so what, what do you what do you think is gonna happen with him? I mean, well, one thing that's very frustrating about Bevin's case is that now he has um, President Karzai gives presidential benefits. Um, during certain Islamic holidays where he reduces people's sentences. Mm -hmm. And so based on the different various presidential decrees over the last six years since Bevin has been in prison, he qualifies to get released. Matter of fact, he qualified to get released in October 2012, but they are refusing to release him. And so I... Well, why? I mean... Well, the, there's an administrative issue where one person that is the head, that was the formal, former head of the commission to reduce prison sentences, failed to sign his presidential decree. The presidential decrees are global. They're not like for Bevan Cabell. Therefore, you know, if you've done five years, you get one year off kind of thing. And so anyway... A good, good behavior doesn't help? No, yeah. you, there's no time off for good behavior here. I see. And so... Um, the guy actually failed to sign over 200 prisoners' presidential decrees. It was a completely administrative error. And so basically, when I've been going back and forth between the commission and the attorney general's office, there's now a new head of commission. And the new head of commission is not willing to do it. The attorney general's office has instructed him to do it, but yeah. he still doesn't want to do it. And so he's saying that basically what needs to happen is we need to find the old head of commission, have him sign it, but he can't fucking do it because he's not the head of the commission anymore. So it's completely ridiculous. And because of this administrative error, you know, he sits. And we wait for the next presidential decree. I inform the South African government what's going on. I write my letters to the Afghan government that's what's going on and six months later Bevan is still sitting in prison so because South African government don't have embassy there's just absolutely nothing they can do well I mean South Africa is not really motivated to come here um, to deal with the government face to face they can do things like send note verbals to which are basically diplomatic letters yeah. where um, other countries have to respond regarding you know what's going on with their citizen I believe they have done that, and I believe that the Afghan government has basically ignored them. Mm -hmm. And so it's very difficult for them. You know, I don't want to necessarily crucify the South African government for yeah. this because I understand it's difficult for them. They don't have an embassy here. They really don't have any power within the Afghan government here. So all they can really do is maybe send their South African representative from Islamabad in Pakistan down here or they can just keep writing these diplomatic letters and hope that the Afghan government responds. Can, could they use media? I mean, of course, this is probably not going to happen, but right. if someone like Nelson Mandela writing a letter, would, would that carry a weight? Uh, I don't know if it would, to be honest. Um, wow. Bevin's case has been in the South African media. It's not a new case. It's not a new situation. And how, how do you keep hope for yourself because I'm sure this is frustrating. I mean, I'm sure you're used to it, but I mean, how do you continue to go on? I mean, it's frustrating for him, but it's frustrating right. for you too. I mean, right. how do you? I mean, I have the easy part. I'm not doing the time. If right. Bevan can certainly do it, I certainly can do what I can to try to help him. It is frustrating. Um, it is um, very, very frustrating, but at the end of the day, he deserves the best representation possible. Yeah. He deserves for me to do everything that I can possibly do to get him free. Yeah. Period.
And so that's what I'm trying to do. Um, I've, to be honest, I've exhausted all legal remedies. And now it's just a matter of continually showing my face, trying to ask when is he getting out, when is he getting out. Um, so I try to, rep and also I inform the South African government of this is what I'm doing. Right. So that when they do, when and if they ever do talk to the Afghan government, they can say on these dates his attorney talked to someone within the Afghan government. So I try to keep records of things. Um, and, I, and at the end of the day, frankly, I believe in rule of law. I believe in the legal system in Afghanistan and beyond. Okay, but the question is, do they believe in rule of law? You know what? I have had a lot of really good, successful cases here. Okay. And I think it's not about whether they believe in rule of law. It's about whether or not you can convince them as a good litigator mm -hmm. that what you're arguing for coincides with their with Sharia law or Afghan laws. Okay. And that's what my job is. My job isn't to basically tell them that they should believe in rule of law generally. It's to advocate for my specific client in that situation. I see. Um, how about your second client? Um, my second client is in for murder and basically um, he's accused of, of murdering an Afghan and he's been in since 2009. Um, and this is his colleague, work colleague? Uh, um, I don't want to get too much oh, okay, case, to be honest, um, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's not the nicest case to be honest. Um, but with a lot of the men that are in Polacharki, and these are my Afghan and international clients, it's about, you know, trying to keep their spirits up, yeah. to be honest. A lot of it is very, is very much social work focused. I don't know if you noticed that yesterday when we were at Polacharki. I mean, yes, we talked about legal stuff, and yeah. I think you sat in on my conversation with Bevan. Yeah. But the vast majority of the conversation was about, how are you doing today? Oh, for you sure. Know, what did you do this week? You know, how's this going? How's that going? Is everything okay? It's about having a conversation with them because, you know, what people don't understand is they don't have anybody here, especially Bevan. They don't have an embassy. They don't have family here. They don't have friends here. Um, they're, they were here originally for work. Yeah. And their work colleagues have since left them, which is frankly understandable. Yeah. And so the only person that they really see is me, which is why I'm thankful that you came with me yesterday and I'm, because I'm, it I'm, meant so much to them. Yeah, and it, it meant a lot to me too. And I, I cannot imagine what they were going through because when you were having conversation with Bevan, I was outside and across from uh, there's a big iron fence and I could see, you know, these guys are Taliban and Al Qaeda members, you know, and they're just three Westerners. Mm -hmm. I'm on thousands of these Afghan uh, prisoners. I'm sure there's good percentage of them are innocent people too, but right. you know, it's it's tough enough. I can't even imagine being present in the state, but you're in another country with a different religion and you know, let's be frank, they a lot of them do hate Westerners, you right. know, so I, I don't know how, they have to be a very street smart guys to survive in that environment, you know. Yeah, um, definitely. And um, I could sense um, this particular person you're talking about uh, looks a little angry and uh, right. frustrated. Yeah, he is, and I think it's about. I don't blame him. I don't. I really don't blame him. Yeah, I mean, but it's just you got to be smart in your environment. You know, they they all have some type of military training, which I think is helpful. Yeah. Um, but you know, the lights go out at night in Polcharki. And they don't have much electricity there, and yeah. it's dangerous. It is a dangerous place. For sure. It is a breeding ground 
for terrorist activity? I mean, I, I remember that present, you know, the way I, my understanding is how Polycharic is like, do, do you, did you ever watch HBO's Oz? No. You honestly, I avoid legal and prison shows. Oh, okay, I mean, yeah. I mean, not, it's just. It, that, that show was like, so extreme, but Polycharic, it's like Oz on steroids because they have, tor they used to practice torture and execution. Uh, right, and uh, their their living conditions just hor horrendous, and I'm sure you know I right. don't know if Amnesty International are doing anything about it, but um, yeah, it's a really horrible place, you know. And I was only there for maybe hour, mm -hmm. hour and a half, right. and I, I could feel that negative energy of the place, you know. Right. So um, your second client, you know, we, we, we don't right, want to mention right. his name, but um, yeah, I, I it, but it does seems to me. Um, you serve more time for drugs than murders? Yeah, it's weird. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous, it's a, especially <laughs> considering that Afghanistan's second largest opium producing capital of the world, from what I understand. Not saying that you shouldn't go to jail for drugs, but it. It's number one in heroin for sure. Is it number one in heroin? Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. It just doesn't. I think, it's, I think you get more penalized if you're an international that's in for drugs as opposed to an Afghan, that's for sure. Bevan's sentence is completely absurd that he was given 16 years. I mean, I've seen other Afghans get five years um, or even less for drugs. Um, but you're right. A lot of times murder, people are accused of murder get a less sentence, which doesn't seem to correlate yeah. very well to me. I understand sometimes these conservative judges, they throw books at you mm -hmm. and they're all technical and just everything by the law, but isn't there times you just want to follow the spirit of the law? Like, it just seems like they don't have evidence. And 16 years seems, seems so ridiculous mm -hmm. for that guy, you know? Um, well, I'm like, I would just like judges to know how to read. I mean, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Can you just know how to read just as a basic requirement? I mean, the judges here are so woefully uneducated. It is criminal. You know, and wait, wait, so, I don't understand. So, how did they become a judge if they're poorly educated? Connected connections, who you know. That's how they become judges here. Yeah, there's no like application process. There's especially in 2007. <laughs> there's no application process. There's no, you know, this is these are the criteria. They're developing that now, but that is not the case. I've been to many courts where judges didn't know how to read or write. I've been to many courts where they didn't have legal. Are you books. serious? Yes. It's crazy. It's like the Thunderdome. It's like going to court in the freaking Thunderdome. You were a Thunderdome, Mad Max? Yeah. Like that. No, I, I thought, okay, I thought when you said you attempted <laughs> to read, you know, sometimes you read something literally, but... Um, I've gone to court before we have court, and I'll have my guy read to them yeah. what I've written. Just so that they understand where I'm coming from before court. And then we have court, and I talk to them. You know, so you have to really understand your audience, and that makes things even more difficult because a lot of things are so subjective when yeah. it goes to court. You have to understand a person's flavor, their character, their personality, what they what they consider mitigating circumstances or aggravating circumstances. So it's really trying to get to know a person's personality, a judge's personality, before you go to court. So there's there's a bit of a game gamemanship and a bit of a 
theater too, right? I mean, because one of the amazing things about, one of many amazing things about you last year when I met you, you were, first of all, you were driving as a woman and you didn't cover your hair, you know, and for those of you who never been to Central Asia or Middle East, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of understood rule that you're supposed to cover your hair, correct? It is, but it's not obligatory. I mean, you were, you've been with me for a couple of days. Could yeah. you really see me cover my head? No. Exactly. It's just not my... I have nothing... It's no disrespect to Muslim. It's no disrespect to Islam. Um, it, certainly, if I went to a mosque, I would. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, um, it is not obligatory here. And so you have the choice to do that or not do it. And frankly, women are third-class citizens here. And I have to be strong for my clients. And being strong for my clients means that, um, you know, it's a male-dominated society. And so I, I sort of put myself in a more male-dominated character Yes. Um, in this environment. Because we have, you have to be strong. I mean, I, I know you've been threatened many, many times, mm -hmm. and they've even threatened to rape you and physical yeah. violence against you and things like that. Um, I don't want to say you got used to it, but you um, you just learned to work around it, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of really good criminal defense attorneys, not just me, but around the world and also in the U.S. too, you're going to get threats. Yeah. I mean, when I was back in the States um, practicing as a public defender in Milwaukee, you know, you're representing criminal defendants. And some of them are charged with very, there's always a victim. Right. You know, the victim most of the time does not like the attorney of the person that, has, that they're accusing of victimizing them. Right. So getting threats, um, getting, you know, bad messages, all that, that didn't, for me, at least start in Afghanistan. That's something that I think is just goes with the territory of yeah. any criminal defense attorney. Now here, it is a little bit more elevated because it's a little bit oh, more, sure. um, you know, uncivilized. And here, you sort of get threats, or at least I get threats from people within the government, you know, which you don't really get that. In the I mean, how, how do they do it? Do they send you email or do they verbally just confront you face to face? Well, I currently have a arrest warrant out right now um, on you yeah I always do though and so um, that's what they do they try to put arrest warrants I go down and talk to them mm -hmm. and then I sit there and they say like the last time um, they try to use that because I don't engage in corruption I do not pay bribes yeah and so a lot of times they that must be frustrating for them it is very frustrating for them especially when it's an American citizen yeah or a British citizen from a country that they think has a lot of money mm -hmm. or that does have a lot of money. And so they try to get me out of the picture yeah. so that they can then facilitate a bribe with the person or the person's company. And so, and since it's quite clear now that I don't play those games, I don't engage in corruption or pay bribes or, or anything like that, they try to use different tactics such as um, doing arrest warrants. They're not, they're never legal and they're never real and they're never written correctly. You know, there's always, of course, errors in them and mm -hmm. they know it and they know that I know it. So, so, so this is more like a harassment thing? Yeah, it's more of a harassment thing. I mean, I've So had, there's no real danger of you going to jail? I mean, it hasn't happened yet, you okay. know, and frankly, I, I, they don't want to see me in jail. Yeah. I mean, it'll be ugly for them. To be no, honest. the media will just it'll eat be, it up. It, yeah. It, it, it just wouldn't be good for them. And so, um, because I'm just doing my job, I'm representing people. And so for my last uh, warrant, 
um, basically they're coming after one of my larger companies. Yeah. And so I, what I do here, like you said, I'm an international attorney. Um, my focus is litigation, um, but I represent internationals and Afghans for criminal offenses. I also represent people on human rights work and also represent several embassies mm -hmm. and also represent several international companies that are operating in Afghanistan. And so I fund myself or I get, sometimes I get private donations to do yeah. some of the human rights work. But basically we're a private for-profit business. And I think that's important to say yeah. because we choose what we want to do. So we're not beholden to this grant or this country that's giving us this amount of money. We're beholden to our clients. Right. We're lawyers. And that's what we do. We practice law. And so... But, by the way, you, you really are changing the opinions of lawyers. You know, the lawyers get a lot of bad rap in the States. And um, anyone who's traveled overseas don't understand how lucky we are to have a legal system. It's not a perfect. Right. We do strive for perfection. But um, whenever I travel overseas, just these crazy law or, you know, miscarriage of justice. And it just it's like, like a... You hear this all the time, not just in Afghanistan, you know, so right. I'm, I'm glad there's people like you changing. Oh, thank you. It's yeah. very sweet to say. I mean, I'm glad that... And you're brave, too. I thank mean, you. You're killing me. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm telling you. It's nice. But I think it's, um, you know, there's a lot of people suffering that because law is used as a weapon. Yes. To oppress them. And that's not what the purpose of law is, is for generally. The purpose of law generally is to protect people. And I think, like you said, there's so mis many miscarriages of justices, justice here. Um, we both have Korean backgrounds. Yeah. We certainly know and have heard of, and I'm sure have had family members that have had significant miscarriages of justice in Korea, for sure. especially North Korea. And so I really do appreciate the legal system in, in America, yeah. even more so having practiced here. Oh, because sure. like you said, it's imperfect, but it's pretty it's pretty decent, you know, and I'm happy to have gotten my legal training in the US and happy to be a US trained attorney. Yeah. And I because I have those benefits, I think that has helped me to become a better advocate in Afghanistan. Um, because what I'm doing here, it's not my goal is not to just be a lawyer in Afghanistan or in the U.S. practicing. My, my goal is to represent people around the world um, for injustices wherever yeah. in the court. And so, and I think that's what people need. They need law to protect them and know that it's there to protect them because that is what it's meant to do. Right. And in Afghanistan, there's a lot of really good laws here that are meant to protect people. But the problem is that the people, the judges, the prosecutors are very ignorant to the law. Mm -hmm. They don't know that it's there. And so that sort of precludes or, or allows for a lot of miscarriages of justice, like what's happening with Bevan Campbell. Okay. Um, what, what about the third and final uh, client that I saw yesterday? Well, he's in for, he has a pending court case, which yeah. we're probably going to go to court within a couple weeks. Yeah. And he's in for a tax evasion, which is absurd and fraud. And so he was given three years in the first court. And so um, I didn't represent him in the first court, and yeah. so now I do represent him. So we're preparing for the appellate court, which is basically another court trial. And because okay. that case is ongoing, it's kind of difficult for me to talk too much about it. Unfortunately, I, okay. yeah. yeah. I um, I I, was, I really was moved, you know, what you were doing because you were doing so many things for them, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I could feel like how much they appreciate, mm -hmm. you know. I, I'm sure every inmates need their lawyers but you 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 know just you're right like human contact 
Mm-hmm. Just the fact you could talk to them, you know. Shake you, their hand. Yeah. You know, basic stuff like that just really means so much. I mean, people really need to picture what these guys are going through. They're basically in a mud hut yes. of a building that's no bigger than the average American's bathroom. Yes. You know, there's no there's electricity maybe three hours during the day. Their food is always cold. They have barely little lighting. Um, there's no windows. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, isolated. And then they're surrounded by people that are part of the Taliban al-Qaeda that basically hate foreigners. And this is their life. And this has been their life for years. Yeah. You know, and then they don't, and then on top of that, they don't really, and then on top of that, they are always asked to convert um, as if that would be better for them. And they've been, they have not done that, um, which is amazing, to be honest, because I think a lot of people would have done that for their own protection. So they're always being pressured. They're always being pressured to convert. They're always being pressured about why are they even in this country. Um, And at night, there's no guards there. Yeah. You know, and so everyone has access to everyone. So it's a scary fucking place. And so people need to understand the misery that they go through. You know, in addition to, there was a time when they wouldn't even get regular meals. You know, it was just, they, there was a time at Policharki when I first got here when if you wanted meat or vegetables, if your family or friends didn't bring it in, mm. you didn't get meat or vegetables. So you get rice, you know, and so, you know, three grown men that are in their late 30s, early 40s in this isolated area. You know, it's very scary. Very, very scary. And you're you're so true because right after that, um, you know, that president, we went to that smaller one in mm-hmm. downtown Cabo, right? Tokyo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is even worse. <laughs> well, why 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 is that one? It's worse. Well, it's it's worse because at least at Policharki, they somewhat somewhat there's there's ten blocks in Policharki, yeah. ten different buildings of prisoners. So they somewhat try to group people together right. that are like criminals. But for some reason in the block that these three gentlemen are in, it's the political prisoner block. So there's the highest level terrorist in this block. But also it's the least amount of people. Whereas in Tokiv, you just have basically a room. I saw that. It was like right. a, a one giant room. Right. It, it almost looked like the room where you ice skate. Yeah. And yeah. people kind of walk around and look at him like caged animals. It's a Thunderdome. Yeah, yeah, right. exa- exactly. <clears throat> it doesn't seem very practical because, you know, if you have a quarry of, of, of a bunch of different fish mm-hmm. and you bring, bring different species, eventually they're going to fight. So oh, yeah. you would think you want to separate people from exactly. a certain like, ethnic group or, you know. Exactly. Uh, I mean, at least, like, if you went there, okay, if you notice, it's just a building. Yeah. Policharki had a yard where you could kind of, if they let you, you can walk outside. Get your hair cut. Get yeah. your hair cut. There's none of that there. There was no yard. There was no place for these people to walk around. It's just a fucking room with a bunch of different people for different things. Um, there's a lot of communicable diseases there. They don't have medical care there. They don't um, have the same freedom of visitors yeah. as Policharki does. If you remember when we went there, if you wanted, you know, at least when we went to Policharki, there was like sort of one-on-one contact. Yes, for sure. There, you talk to people through that screen. Yeah. That, those people that were there on the outside, they were visiting their family members. That's how they talked to them. So you can't bring stuff in to get them. Right. You know what I mean? So that's what, and, and also Policharki, 
they have weights. You know, you can you can kind of do extracurricular act- activities there. Yeah. There's very maybe, maybe you listen to a, a BBC radio or uh, watch movie, which I was surprised that they could do that. Exactly. Yeah. And so they don't have that at Tokif. And also, if you remember at Tokif, think about the guards at Policharki. The guards were a little slightly more laid back. Yeah. At Tokif, I had to basically yell at the guard to let him let you in. They're just at high level aggression alert. And if you're that stressed out, that translates to the prisoners. You know what I mean? And so that's why I say Toki, Kopolcharki is bad, don't get me wrong. Right, I don't want right. to take that away. But Tokif is worse, you know, because you don't have those protections. And those guards are terrified to even go into the bullpen to get anybody. They just call them out and have them come out one by one. I see. Um, and, and, and you're very true because... We don't want to have to say your client's name, but something happened to him where he was assaulted, and instead of pointing a lot of finger to uh, the guards, you improve the situation by saying, you know, can you be more supportive of this person? And you you were not being vindictive and say whoever was negligent, the guard, to be fired. In fact, in fact, you were other way around. You're more sympathetic and kind and thanking them, so that way your clients will be treated better by um, the, 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 the guards and uh, whoever was in charge. Was it a captain or a, a general? general, yes. I mean, that's what I have to think about. I could go there like a lunatic yeah. and snap on the guards and say, oh, you need to do this, that, and the other. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm walking back to my office. I'm going back to my office. Yeah. So I have to think about how even how I react to certain situations, mm-hmm with the guards, how they may translate negatively on my clients. Yeah. So I'm always sort of balancing things out. And so like with Policharki, with Tokiv, I have very good relationships with those guards. If yeah, you notice. I, I, could, I yeah. could tell, like, right. people come walk up to you and smile and say hello to you. Mm-hmm. And even General was very appreciative that you wrote a letter of thanking him for improving your client's environment and situation. And this is a very smart this is not just smart legal, it's a smart business move on your part because down the road you might have another client down the road right. might be staying. You don't, want, you don't want to have a bad relationship with these, these exactly. people. Um, <coughs> and they respect me. I mean, they shake my hand. I'm like a, another dude there, which is good. And they know, I mean, they, I think it's a mutual respect, you know, and that's, you, you get what you give. That's the way that I feel. Do you think, you think they're surprised that um, uh, do you think they're surprised by you? Because they probably never seen a person like you, a Westerner practicing law. I mean, did they eventually learn to give you a begrudging respect to you? Well, they never had the option not to respect me. So that's the thing. Ah. From the very beginning, that was never an option. And so from the very beginning, I was probably a little bit more aggressive yeah. than I am now. Because aggressive but polite. Aggressive yeah. but polite, exactly. So in the beginning, mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily willing to shake my hand, but I would keep my hand out there. I'm like, you're going to fucking shake my hand, yeah. and they would. you know. And so I've broken them down in a good way. Yeah. You know, like we are on the same level. You know, I think I'm a little bit higher. But, um, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, you're going to respect me. And so because of doing that, I look them in the eye when I talk to them. Yeah. They also know that if I do complain about something, I don't just complain about everything because that's not smart. 
they know that if I do complain about something, it means something because it's not just me saying right. it's, it's a valid complaint. And I know the procedure and I can back it up and they know that. And so and I'm sure dealing having a good experience with you after what they they know that uh, they trust you. Right. You, you've proven your merit. Right, right. exactly. I prove, I mean, and also, frankly, they also see me representing internationals as well as Afghans. Yeah. So they know I'm not just totally like, where's the new Western person? You know, I'm, I'm very um, open-armed with whomever I'm representing. Yeah. And they know this. I treat my Afghans and my internationals equally the same because they all deserve great representation competent legal representation equally and, and what i really i love you know what i, what I really <laughs> loved it yesterday you're helping your clients but i think you're helping these general and the guards and police officer maybe slowly change their attitude about women too mm -hmm. because they see how competent you are and how um, dedicated you are to your job and uh, i'm sure you're practicing a lot it's, it's it must be changing other people's attitude about law, right? And because you re you expect people to practice law fairly, right? Yeah, I give you know because they should. And you know, when I first started practicing here, I've been here for five years, and I've been practicing here for four years. When I first started practicing here, and I still go through it, I had mostly international clients. Yeah. Well, now I think. Not, I think I know. I have a lot more Afghans knocking at my door. Right. You know, and they know what they're going to get with, you know, that I'm going to try. Yeah. You know, I don't make any promises, which is what you shouldn't do as a lawyer, but you try your best. And I think they're more comfortable with going to me in court. Clearly, everyone, even whether whether I cover or don't cover, the clearly they know that I'm a woman. And so that was another barrier to overcome. You know, I'm not Caucasian. That's another barrier to overcome. Yeah. You know, but it's like, People know, and they want good representation. And I think it's not just people, it's companies, embassies. You know, I represent several embassies here, yeah. and those are positions that they created for me. Because I think, I'm, I like to think anyway, that people trust me, and they know I'm not full of shit, and that I'm not just trying to be a All gimmick. my friends in, in Cabo give nothing but great um, mark on you, a great reputation. <coughs> and. Um, Competence and intelligence and, and, and courage, you know, that's the thing that I keep hearing about you, you know. Um, I, I'm curious, so, you know, you hear this biracial kid from loving parents, study hard, and you were a um, defense attorney, right? Right. Uh, in in uh, Milwaukee, was it? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you're, you're having a successful career. I, I, I so what, how, did, how did this happen? How did, you, how did you, like, I don't think too many people will say, uh, you know, a lot of kids say I want to be an attorney, and right. uh, it's very difficult to do that, but there are very few who do become lawyers. And let's be honest, you suffer for years going to law school. It's right. you, you know, you don't sleep much, you work really hard. A lot, my uncle's attorney, so I remember, he, even he was telling me, when you start law school, you're very idealistic, you want to save the world, but you suffer years right. going to graduate school so by the time you graduated you're a little bit more cynical and you feel like the world owes you something <coughs> that wasn't the impression of you you know you really worked hard and i'm sure as a kid you didn't think like someday i want to go to afghanistan and do human rights how, how did that happen i mean huh? <laughs> well i think it was weird to be honest um i had a friend a, a lawyer friend of mine who i went to lunch with 
And so she took me to lunch and she told me about another friend of hers that was in Afghanistan at the time when I was in the public defender's office and who basically was here training and mentoring Afghan defense attorneys. Okay. And so at that time I'd been a lawyer for five years and I knew that I really didn't want to be with the public defender's office too long. Not because I didn't like it, I loved my job, but my goal has always been to be a great litigator. Right. And so I was trying to, you know, move up basically. And so I was like, okay, that sounds really cool. Can I get his email address? So I got his email address and I said, hey, I just sent him an email and I said, what you're doing sounds really cool. Here's my CV. You know, if you want to talk, if you have any openings, let me know. Well, then two weeks later, I received a phone call from Afghanistan. I mean, this is actually what happened. I didn't even look up the job, to be honest. I just sent my CV blind, didn't even look up the company or anything. So I got a call for a phone interview. So then I did the phone interview and I, apparently I did well. And then I was invited to training like about two months later in Virginia. And then I went to that training and I didn't have a passport at the time because I'd never traveled outside the U.S. Wow. And so, and wait, so, wait, you never travel outside at that point ever anywhere else? No, I had not. I had to get my passport to come here. Kim, I don't want to call you weirdo. <laughs> I don't want to call you weirdo. But most people, when they get passports as American, they go easy places. <laughs> you know, Paris, France, Rome, Italy, London, England. <laughs> Well, that's just amazing. Like you went from one of the freest countries in the world with to here. Yeah, to here. Yeah. It was good for me though because it it um, I think it, it that worked out for me. Yeah. You know because I had no precon I had preconceived notions. I had you know I heard about Afghanistan. Obviously, I heard a lot of negative things, and so but I was open minded when I came to a certain extent. I think that really helped me personally. But what Answer. Did, did, she, did he say you are, are you out of your fucking mind? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, they were. My parents were concerned, and rightfully you know, so. Yeah, they were yeah. rightfully so. And my mother, being from North Korea, obviously, she was like, "What are you doing?" You know. And so, is she, is she really from North Korea? Yeah, she was from North Korea, and so she escaped when she was a kid with her parents. <laughs> and so, um, right. my, my mother is brave. That's, she's hard. My mother's hardcore. Oh, that's gotta be. Um, from her blood. Oh, I yeah. didn't know she's from North Korea. Yeah. yeah. I would I, love to go to North Korea and do a case. I would love to go to North Korea and just talk to the president and sit down with him, with Dennis Rodman, yeah. and just say, what's going on? How can we fix this? How can we be nicer to the people? Well, you know, Dennis Rodman's going back in August again. I would love to go with him. You should talk to... Um, We'll talk more about Tom Friston later on, but, right. but he's on the board on Vice, and you should definitely bring that up with mm -hmm. him. You know, um, I'll be good. I'll be polite. Yeah, I just have I just have a, a lot of suggestions about how he can maybe be nicer to the people. Yeah, without losing his power, be more human. You know, yeah. things like that. Um, I do want to talk more about that later. Sorry, no, no, that's okay. Um, I'm shocked because I I didn't know any of that. I just assumed she's from South Korea. Mm -hmm. So. So you're, you're in Virginia, you're getting training, mm -hmm. you know, you still have a chance to say, okay, this, maybe this is not for me, I, I don't need to go. So you go through training. Mm. It's the first time I fired a gun, I hated it. Oh, wait a minute, you have to do that too. Yeah, it's, I, I didn't like it at all. I didn't like touching a gun, I didn't like firing it. I don't like guns. Oh, I thought, when you said Virginia, I thought it's a extra legal training. This is... No, this is a, it's combat training. It's not, I see. It's like... This is what you need to do. I mean, to be honest, it was sort of, the way they did it was 
somewhat absurd. Yeah. I mean, there was one day when literally we, we watched videos of things or people that had been blown up, yeah. supposedly in Afghanistan. Right. I mean, it was really a training to scare you and make it seem like you're going to the Vietnam War, yeah. to be honest. So you do weapons firing, you do um, driving, like how do you drive away from a bad situation right. kind of thing. You get some medical training. It, there's nothing legal about that training. It was all about how to, it was about survival tactics. Yeah. Which I knew anyway. But um, yeah, so it was interesting. Very, very interesting. So you did that, the next phase, you got your passport? So the next phase I got my passport. Right. And then um, I came here in September 2008, and you know, when I was walking off that airplane, it's like you think that when you walk down there, those stairs, the way that you're trained, that a suicide bomber is going to try to run up to you and give yeah. you a hug. I mean, they scared the crap out of you during those trainings. And so, you, get, you know, I got off the plane, and you know, I had my headscarf in my hand. Right. You know, because they, in trains they said that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to wear a headscarf. So I put it on for about five seconds because you take a bus to the terminal. But I didn't want my first views of Afghanistan to be obstructed. Yeah. And the headscarf kills your peripheral vision. Yeah, for sure, I'm sure. So I took it off. And, you know, I, I saw in the in the bus we're driving to the terminal. There's bullet holes in the in the window. And you see the mountains, and I the last time I had seen mountains was in Palm Springs when I was Miss Wisconsin. That was my first time seeing the mountains. Yeah. And, you know, I saw this lady, another Afghan lady, because it was just me and her. We were the only women on this crowded bus. And we just kind of looked at each other. We just kind of, like, gave each other a smile. You know, like, okay, we're about to deal with this. You yeah. know, and she, I think, had been here for a while. You know, she's Afghan. And... You know, I remember seeing her on the plane. She didn't have the headscarf, was yeah. walking up and down the aisle. So it was just kind of really surreal yeah. for me. And, you know, that night I, I wrote about my experience. You know, you get in the airport, you know, you, you're, you're surrounded by people that want to take your bag. They want, you know, their oh, yeah. carts and, and stuff. And, you know, it's scary. And then you see, you, know, you walk into terminal, then you see one with burkas. And burkas, burkas are very scary looking the first time, at least for me, when I first saw it. You know, because it's just, it, it's just so inhumane. You know, it's, it's just, it's just such an inhumane thing to make anyone, to force a person to do. Now, people choose to do it, whatever, yeah. but to force people to wear burqas, it's just, I don't know, it's, I don't get it. I, I, just living in the state as a man, and I'm sure, you know, we're, let's be honest, I mean, being an Asian guy, mm -hmm. You do grow up a certain amount of sexism, right? Right. And, and, and it's not something I'm, I'm proud of. But coming to Middle East, especially in Afghanistan, I mean, it really, it really embarrassed me. Like, I just couldn't believe that way they would just stare at women. And right. sometimes they would yell at women if they're not covering their hair and things like that. Like, mm -hmm. um, I have a lot of female expats living here. You know, you They yelled at them if they didn't cover their hair? Here? I've seen that, yeah. Really? Yeah. I wish somebody would. <laughs> so, I mean, so you, you come here. Uh, how long did it take before you start coming down? Oh, were you nervous? I mean, you must have been nervous. Yeah, I was nervous. Yeah. And I, you know, to be honest, I wore the headscarf on that bus ride for that five seconds. I never put it back on. Wow. Um, and so, well, I take that back. 
I did it one other time and I'll talk about that. Um, and that was about another five seconds. Um, so I was very scared. Yeah. And personally, I think there's a lot of sexual frustration here of the Afghan man. I think, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that I think if they just would be able to sort of express themselves and to have human contact, not necessarily inappropriate contact, but human contact with women, it would vastly improve. Oh, for sure. Sort of some of the things that are going on here. It's like... Wait, is, is that a cultural rule or is that like a Sharia law? And, and how, would you, how would you explain Sharia law to America? I mean, uh, non-Muslim people listening to the show. It's... It's, it's a... It's Islamic law. Islamic law. Yes. It's a collection of hadiyah, right? Which is There's, the saying and the behavior of the Prophet Muhammad. That's Right. I uh, mean, from what I understand, I definitely do not want to sound like a, a mullah or Islamic law scholar. But from what I understand, yeah. that Sharia law is basically Islamic law. And there's four different schools of thought under Sharia law. I see. And from what I understand... The school of thought that Afghanistan is under is under Hanifi jurisprudence, which is one of the more liberal schools of thought of Sharia yeah. law. Unfortunately, with religion ideologies in Afghanistan and U.S. wherever, a lot of times it's, it can be taken advantage of and be misinterpreted. And so I think... Especially the people who can read, for God's sake. Exactly. Saying. I mean, that's a big you know, sort of benefit, obviously. Knowledge is power. And so you have people that are in powerful positions or powerful people, they sort of have used, have been able to promote, promote their ideologies of Sharia law, or what they perceive as yeah. Sharia law, to oppress people. And I think the main people that are oppressed are the women and the children, you know, and so that's why um, you get justifications for certain things like the burqa because yeah. women are to be treasured when frankly I look at it as that's not treasuring women that's a way to oppress them that's a way to say that they're invisible and if you were a man then it wouldn't matter what if a woman were a burqa or not be a man and treasure the woman and calm yourself down and appreciate the beauty that a woman has don't cover her up over a cloak and say, well, she, we're doing this because she's beautiful, because that's bullshit. You know what I mean? And so... It, it, and what I don't like about it, it doesn't put the responsibility on men, because what my impression right. is, uh, men are incapable of controlling themselves if they see attractive women, so, so to prevent a problem, they want to cover up women. Like, it's just like... Right, really? She, can she just control yourself, you know? Exactly, uh, exactly. And I, I, I don't quite understand the dynamic because, and this is nothing gay, but it's very strange for me when I see men holding each other's hands. But I've been coming to Middle East and Central Asia long enough that I don't really think too much of it. But right. you're right. I think it's normal for teenage boys to have those feelings. Right. Liking girls. It's biological. It's biological. To, to like somebody, whether it's a girl or yeah. a boy, to have sexual feelings. That is human nature. Yes. That is how we are made as people. And so to penalize a man for that or a woman for that is, is ridiculous. You know, as long, you know, it, it's just... It's not practical. It it's not practical. Um, because you're, you're criminalizing basically people for being, having their natural human instincts. Yeah. I, I do think people sh should have sexual rights too. Yeah. You know, it's it's got to be consensual, of course. I agree. Um, but this is, I think, 
you know, we were here at Samosini's house. He owns Tolo, and in the last 10 years, he presented so many shows on TV. I think it slowly is changing people's mm -hmm. attitude. Even his Afghan Idol, I think, I think first season, if I remember right, I think one of the gal, she wasn't dressed in a revealing outfit, but they just saw enough skin that they threatened her for right. her life. Seven, eight, nine, whatever years since the first episode, first season of Afghan Idol, you see women dance around, you see ankles, mm -hmm. like, people do change. Even exactly. in Afghanistan, people do change right. by television or by the law. Um, and I think like Saad, Zaid, Moshani, they're doing wonderful things with Tolo. Oh, for sure. That is changing slowly the minds of people. That is making it, they're putting things out there that are, they're not being, um, you know, uh, uh, crude no. at all with their programming. They're it's just, very tasteful. It's very tasteful. It's very tame for American very, audience. Exactly. Very tasteful, very tame, and it's sort of chipping away and saying it's okay. It's okay for a man and a woman to look at each other in their eyes mm -hmm. and have a conversation. Absolutely. You know, where... The way you have a conversation with your clients and uh, the generals at present and other, um, you know, people in the day-to-day business, you do contact and I think slowly you're chipping away, changing their opinions about women, right. just like Saad's soap opera. I think when women see soap opera and see how women are treated better in other countries, I, I really believe they expand their imagination and hope and like they will start hoping for better life for themselves too, you know, right. so I, I, I know we Americans, we didn't always do the right thing or, or, or in a way that was most smart and practical way in right. Afghanistan, but there are a lot of good things that we're doing here. Definitely, and I think people, the, the happy emotion is missing so much yeah. here, which is why I would love for you and some of your guys to come here, and I would totally support if you did a comedy thing here. Yeah. People need to smile, they need to laugh. Yeah. I mean, just think about it when we went to the detention center. Remember when we went in yeah. and that guy was barking at you, yeah. you know, and he had that mean look on his face. And then before we left, and you, did, yeah. and, and you told him, and yeah. asked the translator, tell him like, you look better if you smile more. Right. And he smiled. Exactly. Uh, see, I, I, would, I would have been a little nervous even <laughs> telling the guy because he did have pretty intimidating look. And... I shouldn't have judged him, but he basically told us, like, you know, this is my style of doing business, you know? Right. And he, he was actually friendly. He was very <laughs> friendly. He, he, it relaxed him. When I stopped him and I said, you know what? Why are you making that mean face? It's not necessary. Just smile. And then he smiled. And then I said, you have a nice smile. And he relaxed. And then he talked to us like human. You know, and that's what's missing here. It's the smiles, it's the laughters, it's the even ability to see women yeah. as people. You know, and it's just like if you are able to do that, which frankly are very basic, basic things, it goes a long way. Yeah. You know, we walked away from that guy. What was he doing? He was smiling, he was laughing, and he shook my hand. Um, yeah. <laughs> and same when we got stopped over a pull of charkey. Yeah. Right? It was all aggressive. But then we got that, them laughing and smiling, they were good to go. I, I, you know, I, I kind of teased him a little bit, but I think because the Middle Eastern and Central Asian people, because of their the facial brow, mm -hmm. it, it, they look intimidating, and I don't think they mean to look intimidating. Right. Yeah, you know, so I guess I misinterpreted them, but yeah, it was interesting. Every time you were able to make them smile, mm -hmm. 
you know, you get your business uh, done. Um, can you talk about because you you ch you did some historically big case and this really changed and like this this is an amazing story. So you were representing this lady, Miss Gallant. Yes. And um, I mean, yeah. I mean, could you explain to the listener because this is yeah. a very important case. Yeah, it was it is an important case. Basically, Gulnaz was an Afghan woman that was um, put in prison for adultery by force. Right. Um, she was raped by her uncle. Um, her uncle was almost twice her age. She went to the police to report the crime, um, found out that she was pregnant, and then they put her in prison. When she went to first and second court, in second court, she was given, I believe it was a 12-year sentence, but was told that if she chose to become her uncle's second wife, then she might be able to not go to prison. She had her baby in prison. Long story short, they gave her the 12-year sentence. Once um, she received the 12-year sentence, um, I was approached by several people to see mm -hmm. if I could possibly represent her. But, but by the way, how old was she when this thing was happening? Um, she was, I believe she was 17 when she was raped. Yes. Um, and she had done, she did two years in prison. And so when I met her, she had done a year and nine months in prison. So I met her and then I asked her if she would like for me to represent her. She said yes. So we took the case to the Supreme Court and in the Supreme Court, she was given a three-year sentence. And basically, they didn't say, you have to marry this guy. So the sentence got better, even though it was still bullshit. And so, and by this time, she had done two years. And so at that point, the case became legally ripe to put in a pardon petition to President Karzai on her behalf. Um, and basically, that's a, a legal document where you ask for a person to be pardoned. You can write it up however you choose to, yeah. but I wrote hers up basically with legal jurisprudence to support the reason why her being charged with this was illegal. Um, because when I practice here, I, you know, it's not about, oh, she shouldn't be charged with this because this is wrong. That's part of it. But it's like, she shouldn't be charged with this because, because according to Article So-and-So, it says that a woman has a, a person has a right to freedom. Because according to the penal code, it says that she was a victim of this crime. As a victim of this crime, you know, I cite the law, and I cite the Holy Quran, and I cite Sharia law tenets that support her, for instance, of being released. Usually, with a pardon application, I think it's a good idea to add letters from family and friends to support the person being released, to support character, um, the character of the person, that they're a good person. So unfortunately, Gulnaz did not have family or friends that are willing to do this. But, but, but why? I, I, I don't understand that. Yeah. It's a cultural thing, but like... I think it was a combination of things. It was um, her, her family was ashamed of the fact that she had been raped, um, even though it wasn't her fault. Um, they looked at her as tainted goods, to be honest. Um, they, there's a big thing about honor. And so they thought that this dishonored their family, the fact that she was attacked. But she, but, but, but the, she, she was a victim. I, I mean, yeah. and, and believe me, this is not the first time I'm hearing a story like this. Right. It, it drives me crazy. Like, um, I, I mean, you're a mother, you have a daughter. We don't have to talk about data, but you have a daughter. Like, I mean, how do you separate yourself when you're helping? I, I know you're helping her. Right. But it's got to choke you up, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean it, it affects me. It does. Um, my clients are my family in a lot of ways. You yeah. know, I get very, for me, 
maybe this isn't the best way to practice law, but it's the way that helps me. Yeah. Um, with my clients, they become, I, I have to get close with them. Yes. You know, as human beings. And so they sort of become pseudo step family to me. Yeah. And so with Gulnaz, you know, but also it's not my role to sit there and cry with her. It's my role no. to protect her and to be her lawyer and to be strong. Yeah. She's crying enough. I don't need to do that. I need to try to figure out how to help her. And so it does get to me, you know, because it, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, no. logically, legally, in all the ease that you can think of, it just does not make any sense. I mean, sense. It's, it's, it's a rape. It's, it's, it's an incest. Right. And, um... Well, yeah. yeah it, it, because this kind of... I mean, there was a documentary called Invisible War last year, mm -hmm. and it's a documentary about six crimes against women in U.S. military. Oh. And there's case after case, and this is just terrible it's happening in America, but these women who were raped, they get kicked out of the military, even though they're victims, because they commit adultery. Right. I did, you know, it's so... Now imagine uh, your freedom taken away because you've been raped. Yeah. And having your baby in prison, giving birth to her in prison, growing up your baby in prison. It's, it's ridiculous. So you're cut off from your family, and obviously this guy, the rapist, just ran around, keep living his life. No, he was locked up. Oh, he, he was, was locked, locked up he too. He was locked up, yes. And so, um, which was, that was at least a positive thing. So there, and also very contradictory because obviously if he's locked up, the courts are acknowledging that yes he did rape her yeah you know what i mean it just it's like what do you people it doesn't make any sense your your sort of logic and so because she didn't have family and friends that were willing to write letters what i did was i put on an online petition mm -hmm. and just put it out there and i was sitting in my office you've been to my office yes. in Kabul, and just put it out there and said you know please sign and so after three days we had over five thousand signatures Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, and it was funny because while I was doing this case, someone cut my fucking electric cord um, for my power in my office. And so I was getting threats, of course. So I had no power. So I was like, it was winter. I was, I was kind of Because struggling. of this particular case? I don't know if it was because of this, but it tracked with this case. I see. You know, and so, because I have a lot of cases at the same time. Yeah. So I can't say, because I don't, I don't obviously know who did it. Yeah. All I know is I didn't have any electricity. And so I, um, once after I put out that petition, so I'm running around Kabul and I want to put in this pardon application and then I have 5,000 signatures. So part of the application was I, I wanted to print out all these signatures. So it's like 500 reams of paper of signatures. Right. I'm going from this house to this house to this house trying to get this together and the part application long story short um was able to get it on karzai's desk and he signed wait, wait, wait. The, i mean that's that's gonna be very difficult yeah. right like you're able to give it to the man the yeah. president of, of afghanistan i mean yeah i was able to get it on his desk yes i'll tell you what i did which is actually it wasn't just five thousand signature there must be other things had to go with that to make that happen right i mean what do you mean i mean did you have to talk to get help with the embassy oh no a, she's, she's, yeah oh, whatever yeah what? <laughs> that's right never mind she's afghan citizen it doesn't matter if she was an afghan citizen these no People think the embassies do more than they do yeah. here. And they certainly try to jump on bandwagons and take credit for stuff that they don't do. I see. Yeah. 
So you had 5,000 signature, and you're able to get in the office of President Carson, which just a, this sounds like a movie to me. It, yeah. It was actually kind of funny because, um, oh, but, the, but then that's also the beauty of Afghanistan, that you can make something like that happen. Yeah. You know, because it'd be very difficult to put anything in front of President Obama. Yeah. You know, but I went to the palace, and I basically was like, I have something for the president. Yes. I need to give them this. And I have this big stack of paper. And they're like, the guards are like, what? <laughs> you know, I was like, this is for the president. Wait, so you didn't even have an inside connection. You just literally walked to his residence. Yeah. With this paperwork. Yes. And so I went there and I was like, I need this to go to him. And they were like, well, you can't just come here and have paperwork for the president. And I said, I know that's not probably normal procedure, but this needs to go to him. And I'm not leaving till I know that it's going to his office. I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to sit here with all these papers. Was, was the translator a little nervous when he was translating this for you? or? Uh... Well, I, I think, I'm sure he was a little bit, but they know it was coming from me. And I know a little diary, so I could put in some words. I see. And so I was like, I'm just going to sit here. And so that's one thing that's, beautiful about Afghans too to be honest is that they're also a very accommodating people. Oh for sure um, that the, the hospitality it puts southerners to shame I mean right. they're, they're incredible I mean right. they really go out of their way to take care of you. Yeah they do and so I did not have the help of the embassies yeah. to get this there. I did not have the help of other people I think the media was very helpful in right. terms of talking about the story, which is all you want. You want the mess to get out there. Yeah. And then, long story short, it got to his desk. And I did get a call, and I knew exactly when he was looking at it. And 15 minutes later, he approved it. Wait, wait. So you told them you're not leaving until they take it. How, how, how much time did it pass until they took it? It took about an hour. That's it? Yeah, it didn't take long. It took, and because I knew when to go. I knew to go when it was almost close to business day and the sh there's going to be a shift change. You know, so you have to time it right, you know. So I wasn't going to go and sit there at 9 a.m., you know. So I went at like 2, you oh, know. And man. I was just like, well, it has to get to them. You know, because they certainly don't want the next shift to come in and see this American woman with all these stacks of paper. They need to fix this problem. Right. And right now I'm that problem. You know, and I'm not doing anything oh, illegal. <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, it's about being a lawyer, understanding your environment. And so I sort of calculated this in my brain that this was sort of what made sense. But, and it but, but out. how did you know? I mean, they could pretend to take it and put it in trash can for all I know. How did, how did you know? Did you just had a gut feeling they were going to take it? To well, I bluffed them. You know, I said, um, I bluffed them, you know, <laughs> I said, you know, and they're expecting this. And so, you know, he knows that this is coming. So I'm going to give him a call at four to make sure he receives it. Oh, wow. So I bluffed him. Oh, man, you're good. <laughs> you're really good. So they deliver. So how much time after that you finally get a phone call from someone? Um, it took a couple of days for him to look at it because he had a c other stuff, obviously, to do. Right. And... I got a phone call a couple of days later, and I was told it, it is the thing that he's going to look at next. And I said, okay. So they called me, and they said, okay, he's in his office. And then I got and This a, is somebody, like assistant or somebody who works for him, obviously. I can't say. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but it was someone that, you know, definitely, you know, 
got my information, read it off the thing and saw, you know, my number. And then um, 15 minutes later, um, they said that it was, I got another phone call. They said it was approved. And this is significant because, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the first time a moral crime was this, overturned. Right. This is the first time. Ever. Ever. In Afghanistan. Right. A young girl from Iraqi come to <laughs> Afghanistan and do this for this young girl. Um, and, and that was fantastic that he yeah. did that because it sets somewhat precedent. And so this was the first time that the president approved a moral crimes case in Afghanistan, had given a pardon. And, you know, President Karzai went on record with CNN saying that what happened to her was a misjudgment. So then it was a significant acknowledgement by the government to say she should not have been judged this. It, he could have just signed and not said anything to the media, but he said it was a misjudgment. What happened was wrong. And in addition to that, what a lot of people don't realize is that when Gulnaz walked out of prison, he also let two other women walk out of prison that same oh, day. Wow. And then in addition to that, um, the president created a special commission to look at all the women's files within the women's prison. And then in addition to that, there was a special unit um, that was created in the attorney general's office that now takes cases of complaints of women who are victims of violence. Right. That was created as a result of this. And then in addition to that, Two months later, Karzai went even further and put out a presidential decree basically decriminalizing running away, which was another moral crime. So I'm really proud about that case, not just because of what it did for Gulnaz, but also what it potentially and did for Absolutely, absolutely. Because you know? um, it, it, it sounds like it, it, it trickled down and helped more and the fact that a president you know, spoke on this, others will hear it and hopefully um, help other women too. Right. Um, and I don't think that could have happened if I just simply put in a petition and says this is wrong, you know, that. Yeah. it was backed up by law. It was yes. backed up by the Holy Quran. It was backed up by the things that you want to argue as a lawyer yeah. to say this is why this shouldn't happen. Not just because it's not an emotional thing, it's a legal thing. Yeah. And that, that's, 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 once again, another great <laughs> thing about you because I, I think I'll get so emotional and upset, I, can't, I couldn't possibly think, mm -hmm. you know, it would probably make me cry if I heard this story and meeting the kid, you know. Um, so, this happened. You changed history on Afghanistan. It must have been thrilled when you see this girl in prison. You tell her the news, right? It was. It was very happy. She cried. Oh, um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, did you cry? No. No. Wow. No. Um, you... <laughs> You're a true professional. You know, I don't know what's wrong with me. No, no, Yoshi. No, no let me tell you something, Yoshi. For some reason, yeah. when it comes to cases, I get emotional. And my the way I choose to throw my emotion is into my work. Yeah. And it's when the damn case. Right, when the fucking case. Yeah. And it's more anger. Yeah. You know what I mean? Controlled anger. Because yeah. if you're too angry, you get clouded. Yeah. So with cases, it's very difficult for me to cry. Yeah. But I put in fucking Toy Story 2, and I can't hold back the tears. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what's wrong with me, but it's actually kind of funny. No, no, funny. there's nothing wrong with you. There has to be. That does, does that make sense, though? I mean, honestly, it's kind of funny if you think about it. Like, Toy Story 2, I cry. This case, I just can't. You know what I mean? I throw it in another way. But I think it's actually kind of funny. I think it's similar to when, you know, parents are having a difficult time, and uh, maybe they have personal problems. But... 
they don't want to show their sadness or problem in front of their kids because they want the kids to have a right. happy life. So it's 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 not that you don't have those horrible feelings you do, but you 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 protect the people that you love by not showing that sign, you know. And um, I I think it's just you're just a strong person that you're able to do that. Um, wow, that that's I I didn't know the detail. I I, I remember reading and hearing about it like casually on CNN I remember um, I just thought it was great they did it I, I didn't know that I was going to end up meeting the person representing the girl oh. yeah I I didn't tell a lot of people these details because I feel like it's kind of complaining so I mean, well, it's not complaining I'm, I'm really fascinated but it's you're like I say book smart and street smart you know um, so when your family members hear stories like this they, they have to be thrilled and very proud of you, you know, mm -hmm. because I'm sure it's not easy for your kids, it's not easy for your husband, you, you're thousands of miles away, you're making a lot of sacrifice, but they must know that they, they're proud of their, your parents must be proud of the daughter and your husband proud of the, his wife and the kids proud of their mother, yeah. so it's, it's cases like this, I'm sure. Well, you know, honestly, like I have a really good husband and I, you know, I didn't do this case alone. I yeah. couldn't have done it without him. Yeah, yeah. You know, so he was there helping me write this, just like I was. He was there helping write the petition. He was there getting the word out. Um, my my kids, I don't share this stuff with them, to be honest, because I want them to be happy. Yeah. And I don't want to talk to my kids right now about a person being assaulted. And you know, it's it's sad. Um, my 16-year-old now, I talk a little bit more with her, but also with these stories. They talk about sort of the threats I get and things like that. Yeah. I don't want my kids to read that. Yeah. You know, I want them to, to just be happy and just not worry about me. But, um, my but let me tell you, uh, um, I'm almost 100% sure eventually when they're old enough to hear this kind of thing and read about it, I'm, I'm going to guarantee it they're, they're just very proud of you. That's have to be, you know. And yeah, I mean, they, my kids now, when I first came here, they weren't as internet savvy, but now they have Googled me. Yeah. And they have read stuff, and so they are very aware. Um, my son used to think I was a spy because I would not tell him what I did here. Yeah. <laughs> and so... But let's be honest, if you live in Kabul, Afghanistan, a lot of people get accused of being spy here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I can understand why he thought that because... Um, it makes sense. It added up. You know, he, I didn't really share what I was doing here. Yeah. Um, but it's actually um, kind of funny. My parents don't really know what I'm doing, to be honest. They, <laughs> they kind of think that I'm still with the justice program. I didn't. When I first came here, I came here to train and mentor Afghan defense attorneys. So they kind of still think that I do that still. I think, um, which is actually kind of funny. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, if there's things that you wish you would have known when you started, or what is the things that you wish you could have told yourself five years ago when you moved here? Like, boy, I wish I would have known in the beginning. Hmm. God, that's a good question. What do I wish I would have known five years ago that I know now? I wish I, as much as I believe that the burqa is very oppressive, and I was very much against the burqa, and I still am to a certain extent. Um, I wish I had appreciated the strength also that it takes women to swallow their pride and put that on. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's easy to judge from outside looking in. Yeah. A lot of pe women wear it 
not for themselves, but to protect their families, to protect their kids. For sure. Um, most of the time, frankly, against other family members or even their husbands. Yeah. Um, so that takes a lot of strength to swallow your pride. And, you know, frankly, I've met a lot of very strong Afghan women that are educated, that are professionals, that wear burqas. Yeah. You know, because at the end of the day, they're very unselfish. So I wish I had appreciated that more than instead of looking at, at that as a complete shackle right. to them as human beings and not really understanding why some women do it and why some women don't do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you, you kind of have to balance your legal expert, but also have to deal with the reality. You know, sure, we want justice for every, everyone, but you have to go incremental, right? I mean, right. yeah. Right. And I wish also that, um, I wish people, I just really want people to understand that me not wearing a headscarf is not, I'm not doing it out of disrespect. And I think um, some internationals in the U.S., they've kind of, I haven't liked some of the responses I've received because mm-hmm. they've been sort of anti-Muslim. I'm not anti-Muslim no. at all. You're, um, you're a pro-justice person. I'm pro-justice. Yeah. And so I don't do it as a disrespect to them. I do it because it's just what's comfortable for me as a person. Yeah. And so... And I think you, you even mentioned that, that you command the court better without uh, any sort of headgear on, right? I, I mean, do. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's just what's in my strength. And I was going to tell you this, my second time when I wore a headscarf yeah. was I, I represented a British guy, Bill Shaw. And I was getting a lot of pressure, and we were going to the second court, and I was getting a lot of pressure from internationals and Afghans, mostly internationals, who think they know better. And they were saying, oh, you should wear the headscarf because that'll help him in court. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, I never, ever want to adversely affect my clients yeah. with my attire or anything like that. So I got so much pressure, and, you know, I was talking to my husband about it. I wish those people understand. I... I, I I kind of understand where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. They they're probably want you to make your life easier by fitting in, right? Right. But you're not a consensus lawyer. You're, you're motivated by conviction. Right. And, and, and it's not the most popular thing to do. Right. Especially when you're a principal person like yourself. And um, it's not easy. But, you know, it's like I said, they can't corrupt you by bribery. Right. You you do your job. That's the ultimate protection, isn't it? Yeah. You you can't con an honest person mm-hmm. and a person with principle and conviction. So, I I, I think I, I think you you doing an uh, amazing, fabulous job Thank here. You. Thank you. So let me just finish this. So yeah. so anyway, so I was getting all this pressure, and then I also was moved. This is a time when I was moving around to different places, different because I was getting so many threats. threats yeah. And I was coming home, and you know I came home one time, all my Stuff was everywhere. I came another time. I had water. They had turned on water, and I was so I wasn't really scared. I was just annoyed, yeah. you know. And so I was moving from place to place. I was even sleeping in my car. I mean, I was just really like in a not usual place. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna go have a meeting with this judges, and I'm gonna wear the headscarf. I'm gonna go to wear the headscarf. And so I go to the judge's office, and it's uh, three male judges, and I walk in, and I have the headscarf on. Right. And the head judge, the first thing he does, he looks at me and he goes, what's that on your head? And I was like, I don't know. And I took it off. And I thought that was such, you know, I was like, he was right. He didn't know how much that meant at that point in time. But he yeah. was like, that's not you. You know, don't walk in here. Walk, you're walking the way that you walk in here. 
you know, and, you know, in that conversation, you know, it was, it was really a great conversation for me per professionally, especially at that time. You know, he was saying, you know, how very proud they are that I'm an American lawyer that's here practicing their court system. How much they appreciate it. And, you know, ended up winning that case in that court. But it was just like, you know, you have to be yourself. You know, I have to be myself as a as a person, as a woman, as a lawyer. And at the end of the day, you know, that's what makes me comfortable and that's what helps my client. If I'm not comfortable as a lawyer in the courtroom, then I sort of am at a somewhat deficiency in representing my client. Yeah. And so I thought that was really, really interesting. And and it, it's true and, you know, I have a lot of black friends and it, they always tell me it's, it's like, you're not doing it out of defiance. It's it's the way you carry yourself. And Your like, swagger. Yeah, it's a <laughs> swagger. So the way you, that, that swagger, like, People just like accept, like, okay, that's her style. Even even Afghanistan, once people know that how you're that way, right. they just leave you along, you know. Exactly. Um, what what? So what's your next? Go. I know you, you have a successful practice. You, you're helping people. What's your long term um, like a major goal? Would you tell me you want to expand to other country law practice? I definitely do. I mean, I definitely want to spread the word of legal practice yeah. in the world. And I want to go to other countries and I want to practice and represent people in other countries yeah. on commercial and also human rights matters. Yeah. And I want to develop legal warriors out there um, that are lawyers like myself and that I can mentor, that I can teach. And they can you, teach me. Yeah, because you were telling me a lot of people try to work for you and they barely last a week and they get the fuck out of here. Right, Yeah. exactly. I mean, the longest I've had an international attorney um, work for me is seven days. And that includes the weekend. And so, and they had two days off. And so really it was five days work. Yeah. And so because what I do also scares the shit out of people. Um, I'm not mean, you see that I'm polite but yeah. aggressive, but you have to have a certain swagger, a certain personality to deal with a lot of the things that you deal with. And you are a workaholic. Yeah. I and mean, you put some <laughs> crazy hours. Um, I mean, one of, one of my, hopefully, goal for this podcast was I hope somebody will listen to this and then want to work for you. Cause you know, this should be a show. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just a, this should be a show. I'm, 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 yes, <laughs> no, there, there definitely should be a show about right. you. But like, we've been talking about this. There definitely should be a show about you. But not just for Afghanistan, but like different places in the world. Absolutely. I mean, people need an example. The law is a way to empower people, whether it's in the U.S. or in Afghanistan or yeah. India, whatever. It is a powerful tool. And the average person, the, the average person has the right to enact that law. And, you know, I think, you know, there's money that separates people from the, the rich, the poor, but law yeah. is really supposed to be there for everyone equally and can protect people. Yeah. And I really believe in it in the U.S. and also in Afghanistan because I've seen it work. Yes. You know, for the people that have nothing, you know, that barely have a roof over their head, that live in refugee camps. The yeah. law is there for them. And that's what I want. I want the world to understand how people can use the law to protect themselves, the average person. I, I remember getting pulled over with one of my friends. He's, he's a um, law student. And, you know, most average person get pulled over by cops. They're just fearful, especially, you know, darker your skin. They're just scared right. by the police. But my friend calmly talked to me a lot, like, the cop didn't really fuck with the guy. Because, <laughs> you know, you don't want to be arrogant about it. But right. he knows the law and police 
sometimes have to be reminded they're just execution of the law. They're not the lawmaker. So exactly. knowing the law definitely help you. And going back to what you were saying about promoting um, legal offices throughout different countries, I hope that happened. And whoever's listening to this, I mean, Kimberly is like the legal Jedi Knight. You know, you, you, you need these real um, strong lawyers with principle and conviction work for you and I hope you know you, you do spread out offices because I, I think for every one thing that you help one person you help there must be thin if not hundreds or thousands of other right. people in jail for some bullshit reason oh, yeah. you know I mean I've advised I advise lawyers from around the world. Yeah. You know, they hear about my work in Afghanistan, and I have conference calls with attorneys everywhere yeah. about their cases, about my opinion on what they should do with their cases. And that's what I want. I want to spread it even more. We have to create some more legal warriors. Yes. People deserve to be protected by the law, because that is what it's there for. Um, and two more things before we finish. Sorry. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. I talk a lot. I'm no, no, sorry. no, 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 no. Um, I, I feel bad. You know, I don't want to waste any more of your time. Um, going back to your mother, so she fled North Korea. Mm -hmm. do, do you know the detailed story about that? Um, Not really. I mean, my mother, she doesn't really like talking about it a lot. Yeah. I just know that um, her and her father and her brother, they were somewhat well off in North Korea. Right. And my uncle, excuse me, my, my grandfather was in politics. I see. And so they fled um, North Korea like many Koreans have fled. Um, he was almost killed fleeing, you know, yeah. because he was part of the wrong political it, it, party. Was your mom uh, very young at the time? She or? was very young. Okay. She was very, very young. And so, um, like, very, like, barely, barely, almost barely walking young, you know. And so, a lot of her documents were destroyed. Um, you know, she didn't really know her age for a while because, you know, you just leave. You know, you just leave. And I can't even imagine yeah. having to do that with your family. I mean, it must have been so hard. And they went from being a pretty good, well-off to middle-class family to basically being... Um, you know, beggars, basically stealing, you know, going to farm, stealing, stealing stuff, whatever. And because they were sort of undercover for a little bit, um, they changed their names. And actually, um, my grandfather um, had them do street, they, were, they became street performers. Yeah. And so... Did they, did they flee to South Korea or to China? To South Korea. South Korea, okay. Yeah. And so um, they became street performers. And so my mother, and then... You know, so they were doing that, and but it's my mother doesn't really like talking a lot about yeah. Korea, to be honest, because you know when she met my father, um, my grandfather kind of had an arranged marriage for her, which frankly is similar to Afghanistan, and so she decided to marry my father and kind of became an outcast, and also my father's not Korean, yeah. you know he's black, and there's. I mean, you know, there's issues with blacks and Koreans in yeah. the U.S., and so. You know, it was just kind which is, of... Which is strange. It is I mean, strange. as a comedian, I've done plenty of Asian jokes and black jokes, but you would think both groups growing up in an oppressive, horrible situation would be more sympathetic, and it just, it's just very sad when I when I yeah. see that. But I have to say, it's been a little over 20 years since L.A. riots. Things have improved, That's you know? Good. You know, I, I believe if you give enough time, even places like Afghanistan change, surely it'll be easier to change yeah, in America too. exactly. But I, I, I just find your story, this narrative is interesting because, you know, today I, I went to a, a place where I met this couple of these chieftains and um, they fought the, the Soviets and Taliban and, you know, they went through a very difficult life and, and you know, they're freedom fighters. 
And when they ask my background and being part, uh, Korean, and they're telling me like, oh my God, that must be the craziest place in the whole world. And like, they, they <laughs> live in Afghanistan, they deal with all this stuff, but even right. to them, what they heard about North Korea is just um, unimaginable evil, you know? Right. So, thank God she escaped, because because of her escaping, she was able to bring you to this world, and you turn around to help <laughs> all these people, you know? Um, I mean, I, I, I just adore you, and I just respect oh, everything that you do, and then I keep you, keep uh, continue with work. And this is the last thing no I want to talk. I'm, I'm very excited for you tomorrow because you're doing something very special tomorrow. Would you mind talking about it a little yes. bit? Yeah. Um, I'm doing a photo shoot um, to possibly have an article in Vanity Fair written by the infamous Tom Preston, yes. who actually came to Afghanistan and has um, a big heart for Afghanistan. And for so, years, he's been here for years. For yeah. years, and so um, he has a great reputation here, as well as obviously in other circles. And so he um, is going to write an article in Vanity Fair about me. And so I'm doing a photo shoot tomorrow here in Afghanistan, which should be interesting and fun, very very fun. You know, it, it doesn't mean anything when you know me saying how great you are, but the fact that someone of Tom Fritzen's level, you know, who used to be CEO of Viacom and who donated so much of his time improving the world, especially in Afghanistan, and, and he's a member of Asia Society too, and he's on the board of Vice, and for God's sake, Oprah Winfrey begged him for two years to work on, on the board for all oh, her really? network. Yeah, mm -hmm. so this is not a somebody, uh, it's not a joke, he's a serious man, a, a funny man, mm -hmm. who cares about people and doing a lot of great work, and. I um, this makes a lot of sense to me for him to show interest because you are doing great work. You know, you. you're not doing some. You're not motivated by money and greed. You know, mm -hmm. you're doing a lot of work. So money is easy. Any idiot can make money. I mean, it's about helping people. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm not saying I. I definitely make money. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But. You know, you have to balance it like uh, anything else. No, I mean, I, I believe you can make money and still be a decent person like Tom Preston. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So, and I guess Tom got interested in your story because mm -hmm. there was a New York Times article, right. right? Can you quickly talk about one thing we'll finish up that? No problem, no problem. Um, well, that was involving... Um, I, it, it, was it April 1st, 2003? It was April, April 1st, 2013, yeah. Yeah, April 1st, 2013. Yeah. Um, New York Times on their front page had this article about a six-year-old girl named Nagma who basically was um, given to another family um, engaged to another family due to a debt that her father owed the other well, family. Once again, how old was the girl? Six. Six, okay. So that would be first grade yeah. um, in the U.S. Um, and so anyway, she, the father owed $2,500 to another man, right. Afghan. The father who owed the debt, he lives in a refugee camp. He has eight children. He had nine children that lived in the refugee camp with him. Mm -hmm. uh, one of his kids died um, a couple months prior due to the elements. Yeah. So they're basically homeless. He does not have a steady job. He did construction work. And on the days when he was picked, because he goes out in the streets every morning and tries to get picked. Right. On the days he's picked to do construction, he makes $6 on those days. Yeah. So as a result of his situation, he had to borrow money from this guy. Yeah. He owed this money um, for years and years, and the guy, the other guy whom he owned money to said, enough's enough, I want my money. So Taj, the guy's name that owed the money, his name is Taj Muhammad. Mm. So basically, 
the guy to whom he owed the money to has an 18, 19-year-old son, and so he wanted the six-year-old to be engaged to his son and to satisfy the debt. Now, does that mean they will wait until she turned 18? No. No. Okay. So anyway, they had a jirga, yeah. which is basically part of the traditional justice system. And it's where you have a mullah, who's a religious holy leader there. Right. You have a elders there. You have the two parties that are involved. And then you have witnesses that are there. Right. And so the jirga came to the decision that, yes, he should give his daughter to this guy to satisfy this $2,500 debt. So anyway, I was approached by several donors who wanted to possibly pay the debt right. and they were asking me what can they do to pay the debt and so I explained to them mm -hmm. sorry, that it's not that simple right you can't just throw money at people here and think it's all fixed and right. everyone goes skipping to a rainbow right what needs to happen is you need to have a second jirga and in the second jirga it's basically like a pellet court I apologize. go ahead can I get this real quick yeah hello is U.S. Um, oh, I got all these messages. Um, so basically, they said that you need to have a you need to have a second jirga, which is basically going to a second court. Yeah. And so I told them, and and usually these are things that are um, part of the informal justice system in Afghanistan. Right. They're not a courtroom. They're usually like out in the community in the hills or whatever. Is this similar to mediation? Is it... it is. Okay. It is, but there aren't really any rules, uh. meaning that. They care less about human rights standards. You know, usually mediation, there's some sorts of rules. There's no rules with Jirga. I see. And so I got involved, and basically, in order for me to get involved, I said, you, with each Jirga, you have like a head person of the Jirga, the person right. that's the decision maker. So I said, I'll get involved in this, but what needs to happen is, first of all, both parties need to agree that they want another Jirga. Right. You need to have mullahs there, which is religious holy leaders. You need to have elders there. Yes. We need to have witnesses there. Right. And in addition to this, they all would need to agree that I am the decision maker of this jerga, that I'm in charge of this jerga, and whatever decision I say goes. And so long story short, on April 2nd, um, the, the April 1st, New York Times did this article. They had not realized that I've done, I did the jerga. We had another jerga. In the second jerga, uh, I made the decision to, number one, um, the debt became satisfied. Two, the marriage, the engagement was off. So she didn't have to be engaged. But, but, I'm sorry to interrupt. How were you able to make everyone agree to that? Like, you know, here's a woman. I, I don't know how mullahs mm -hmm. feel about women, but how were you able to persuade them to like, okay, we'll agree to that? Because I like to make people smile and relax them and talk to them. And I just explained what, I just was a lawyer. I'm just a lawyer. You know what I mean? I explained my case. I explained my position. Yeah. Um, I came at them very aggressively but politely, and yeah. they agreed, and they respected that, and that's that's how. I mean, I can't really. I, I don't really know. I just. You, it's you just have what I this do. magic touch because I um I've been to Mary's many many times, and every time you're able to make them smile. Smiles go so long. Yeah, it's and like, agree agree to okay. So you're able to make them agree <laughs> to this term, right? Which is amazing to me. Right. All right? So then we had the jirga. Right. And in the second jirga, again, the debt was satisfied. Yeah. Um, got them to agree to annul the engagement yeah. of Nagma. Got them to agree to, um, I threw in some extra stuff because I thought it was good. Yeah. Got them to agree that all the daughters, all the females, 
that were under 18 that they would allow for them to go to school. Yeah. Got them to agree that all their daughters could choose who they choose to marry when they become adult women and then got them all to agree that what they did was illegal and if they do this again they can go to prison okay and so got them to agree i videotaped it actually dan rather's reports was here and so i wanted it to be very and so i was trying to keep it quiet knowing that that wasn't going to come out for a while you know and so videotaped the jerga had them all sign um, the documents, mm-hmm. and most of them couldn't sign, so they thumbprinted it. Right. Um, and gave them all copies of the Jirga Agreement, and got it satisfied. And so, New York Times. But there was a mistake in New York Times article, or uh, or. Yeah, I mean, it it was. I didn't tell anybody about this Jirga uh-huh. because I was trying to keep it quiet right. and also the donor wanted to remain anonymous and the right. donor is my client and so very nice person very nice person and so um, I didn't tell anybody about it um, and also you know with I do so many things over the line here I just didn't want to hear it about me going in the informal system yeah. I've done it for years I just don't tell people yeah. so but, but when I however when I saw this come on the front page of the New York Times article you know it wasn't the Full story. It wasn't the full story. Yeah. It wasn't that a lie, but it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't incorrect. It was yeah. just not updated. Yeah. Because the second jerk we had in the beginning of March, and so I kept it quiet, and so that's why the New York Times put in an editor's note because mm. Taj Muhammad called them to let them know that no, this has been fixed. Yeah. And so he was able to show them the Jerga documents so that they could see that it had been fixed. And so therefore, then there was a second article on April second which was my birthday, about what I did in this jerga. And so... Um, and because this is important to you, because if you only read the first article, it looks like you just took the money... Right, that's my credibility. Yeah, it, 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 it hurts your credibility because the, 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 this private donor was nice enough to provide money for it right. and hope that this girl get better life for right. herself. And only thing you read in articles like nothing was really resolved except you exactly. took the money. Yeah. And it's on the front page of New York Times. Yeah. So it's like... You don't know what you're... And I said, you know, I videotaped it, so I tried to be very Mm -hmm. transparent and thank God I did because then you could see with your eyes and see that it did happen. And so I contacted the donors right away to let them know, hey, listen, you know, this was resolved. Um, I, you know, and I talked to... Alyssa Rue with New York Times, who I think is a fantastic journalist. Um, certainly, it wasn't her fault at all. She had no reason to know yeah, yeah. that I was involved in this. And also, frankly, there were some women's rights groups that were misleading the New York Times um, because they didn't want to let them, because they try to get money. Yeah. They try to get their name in the paper. And so they didn't want to tell them that this had been solved because they get donations not, Isn't not it sad? Donations. It's, it's really it's, it's very crazy. sad because the only thing they care about is more power for them realizing not even power money money because they don't do anything <laughs> and they should be thinking about this young girl and you told me uh, about an hour hour and a half ago a great news for the six-year-old girl yes i'm very excited i'm going to take her to get registered for school at the um, one of the Afghanistan National Institute of Music, mm-hmm. and they're a great school here, and the father has agreed, and so I'm going to take her this weekend to the school. And this school actually just had a performance at Carnegie Hall in New York, and so I'm very excited. And so we're going to see, you know, we're gonna, I'm not going to necessarily enroll her. That's the goal, but we're going to go there and see if she's comfortable. Yeah. And if she's comfortable, which I think she will be, 
then we're going to get her in that school. It's, it's one of the best schools in Afghanistan. So it's very nice on them to, and, and actually, um, they wanted to do this. Yes. You know, and so they're, you know, with this just shows you how nice people are. You know, you have a private donors, and it just wasn't one donor that came forward. There were many people yes. when they first read about this little girl that wanted to satisfy the debt. And then you just have people just want to help. And, you know, not Taj Muhammad, he has a job. You know, so we're trying yeah. to help this family really and, 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 and this is a great thing because you didn't make any sort of judgment because we don't know what it is to be a father trying to sell daughter you know he's, he was in a horrible situation right i never want to be in that situation right so you work within the framework because if you live in america you just can't even imagine you have to do something like that but you understand where he's coming from you help him now i mean he didn't want this decision that's the thing they all came to this decision he, okay. was, he wasn't like okay that's fine you know, I mean, he fought against it. But when you have a jerga, it's whatever the decision is. Mm -hmm. And that's what the decision was. And even with that, he said, okay, okay, can I just have four more years to try to satisfy this debt? So yeah. he even tried to give himself a window to try to pay off the debt. So he, that's stuff you don't read about, but that's what happened. You know, so he wasn't all happy about this. He was very very upset about this and he wait, 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 was he upset because he took the handout that's his baby that's what he's upset he was upset about the girl being forced to marry or engage uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he did well, not want that to happen and right. i've been to the refugee camp i've seen him with his daughter he's yeah. very loving i don't think it's a joke you know some of the boys it was funny i went to the refugee camp some of the boys were teasing her and and he like you know i, I don't he just sort of really scolded them like leave my baby alone yeah. you know he was just really sweet you know and there are men here that do that yeah and have no problem doing that but i'm sorry taj muhammad is just not that guy you yeah. know he is he ain't that guy you know and i know that's what people read but he's he's not that guy yeah you know and i'm i, I was which is frankly why i was willing to even get involved yeah. and continue to want to stay involved because i do think that he's not that guy you know and a lot of his money that he goes to earn his wife is very sick, and so he was. That was going towards medicine yeah. and medical things. So I'm trying to figure out um, how another hospital came forward, and so I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, get her medical treatment. Yeah. So you know, it's nice. It's nice. It's that nice that you so didn't nice. judge them. It's nice because sometimes when you're when you're in desperate situation, you you make some decision that you don't like, but you but you have to make them you have to make them and, right. and I'm glad you helped them because you helped that family this girl you never know this girl might someday become an attorney right and help other girls too right. so and I just think about my 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 sort of heritage and, and my family my mother you yeah. know that the, the decision that they had to make when they when my grandfather and grandmother were like we have to leave North Korea yeah and knowing that that is a really life-or-death situation and we're gonna take our babies with us yeah I mean that is a hard decision to make For sure you know and they were really really putting them their lives at risk but they did it and that's what people need to understand that it, you know you just shouldn't just judge people like that it's not fair and that's one thing that's good about the law is because you know you can use it yeah. so people can understand people's situations if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And that blood went through you from yeah. your father, your mom, and um, oh, I, I, I really didn't know about this North Korean thing. I mean, I hope Shane Smith, one of the co-founder, or one of the founders of Vice, mm -hmm. who sent Dennis Rodman to North Korea, I hope he hears this story. Mm -hmm. 
It'll be, it'll be great if you come. I want to go with Dennis Robin. No, I'll pay for my ticket. I'm not even tripping on that. No, you need, you really need to talk to Tom Freshen about that and, and make sure you talk to Shane from Vice because uh, this your story is just so fascinating. I, I, God damn it, Kim. Finish <laughs> your book. Finish your book. I need a writer. I can't have time. Finish your book. Have that TV show because it's going to inspire women not just in Afghanistan but overseas, you know, and law can be frustrating but it's it's the it's not the perfect system but it's the best one we have available and um i i thank you and i think you know thousands of people hundreds of thousands if not millions of people here in this not here in this podcast but okay. people will appreciate what you're doing yeah. for them well you thank know? you i thank you very much for you coming here too and, and let's have a deal if I'm able to get to North Korea, you have to do a comedy show in Afghanistan. Okay? Can we can we deal yeah, with that? Yeah, that'll be easier, believe Exactly. Me. And let's bring, like, Chris Brown. Let's put some smiles and laughter yeah. in Afghanistan. Well, okay. thanks for doing this podcast. Um, I'm really, I'm, you know, funny thing, I'm more excited about you doing this Vanity Fair than you are. I, I, I think you're with the right people, and I think they will help you, and you'll help them. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, have, I wish nothing but the best, and Good luck with you, and your family should be proud of you. Oh, I mean, they have you. to. So, I'm all right. Um, before we go, um, you you have Mutley Legal Services and Mutley Consulting International. Can you tell them your um, uh, website so they could check it out? Sure. My website is www.motleylegal.com, and people can email me. I like getting emails, and I always email people back. Do you have a lot of you have a lot of followers? Maybe I shouldn't give my email. But my email is kmotley at motleylegal.com. And can you tell them your uh, Twitter account too, you know? My my Twitter account, which I need to do a better job of tweeting stuff, yeah. is um, kcymotley. Okay. Well, Kimberly, uh, good luck with you. I know there's a bunch of other exciting projects coming up, but you can't talk about it. But I just want to say you have Dan Rounder and Tom Frester on your corner. This is great, and uh, good luck with you. And thanks for doing this. And uh, everyone, um, just tweet back to her, email her, support her, and uh, hopefully they could start um, helping you. And I'm going to make... The Afghan Women's Boxing Team. Can I talk about that? Oh, sure, sure. Oh, please. I represent the Afghan Women's Boxing Team, which is fantastic. And basically, we're preparing for, for Rio. And yeah. this is Afghan women, women, young women who are boxers. So I would love for them to be endorsed by some sports agency or something for equipment or support or to get really good training because they, these are very dedicated women they very much always talk about you know Layla Ali yes for who they sure. really look up to um, and they just have heart you know and they're doing things that are completely against the culture here yes. in Afghanistan as women and as young women and I'm so proud of them and I just want the world to support them too and when, when, when women, I'm a big support, I love sports, I'm a big supporter of women in sports because instead of teaching women that they should be worried about what their body parts look like, they learn to do things with their body, you know, playing basketball, volleyball, or softball, or boxing. This is, a, you know, it's a, it's a great confidence builder. Right. It's, it's, it's good for your health. So anyone hearing this, or if you happen to be a friend with somebody, whether semi-professional um, uh, mm -hmm. boxer that could help, equipment, you know, you have uh, my Twitter account address, uh, oh, or you, you can email me too. Yeah, just please um, help Kimberly because she's, she's all about business and helping people. 
So, all right, guys, thanks for listening, and uh, talk to you guys soon. Goodbye. Bye.